We're going to pick up in Ephesians chapter 6, so if you have a Bible, go ahead and turn there. Pick up right where we were on Sunday and continue on in our study of the full armor of God, its importance, its significance for us. So I'm going to read it over again. Let's start in verse 13. Therefore, take up the full armor of God so that you will be able to resist in the evil day and having done everything to stand firm. Stand firm, therefore, having girded your loins with the belt of truth. I add belt in there, but with the truth, it's that belt. Having put on the breastplate of righteousness, having shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace. In addition to all, taking up the shield of faith with which you will be able to extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. And take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. With all prayer and petition, pray at all times in the Spirit. And with this in view, be on the alert with all perseverance and petition for all the saints. And Lord, I do pray for further revelation and understanding that we might be equipped and wear this full armor. In Jesus' name, Amen. So we are engaged in the fight of the faithful, both in our study here in Ephesians chapter 6, but also here at the end of the age. And looking at these armaments, we talked about the first five on on Sunday in Paul's list. Uh, In Greek, the panoplia, the full array of the armor of God. And we talked about the fact that it is the armor of God, that it belongs to God. It's, It's His armor. Belongs to the Lord from the strength of His might. So the power to wear the armor, the power to wield the aspects of the armor and to be effective with this armor, it's His power. But it's His power given to His people. Isaiah said, Isaiah 59, 17, you may recall He put on righteousness like a breastplate and a helmet of salvation on His head. And He put on garments of vengeance for clothing and wrapped Himself with zeal as a mantle. And why? Why would God wear that? Isaiah continues in Isaiah 61 verse 10, I will rejoice greatly in the Lord. My soul will exult in my God for He has clothed me with garments of salvation. He has wrapped me with a robe of righteousness. God is zealous for your salvation and mine. God is zealous will fight for the salvation of anybody on the planet who would cry out the name of Jesus. That's His desire. I think that is well established, not only across the ages, but across the pages of Scripture. We know that God wants to save. That being a God of love, He is motivated by that love. And we see our our salvation hard-fought and won at the Battle of Skull Hill, I called it on Sunday, there at the cross of Calvary. And yet we still fight. The battle's been won. The victory is ours. But we still fight. We still have to gear up. We're still called upon to put on the full armor of God, though not for ourselves. We put on the belt of truth, the breastplate of righteousness, having shot our feet with the boots of the preparation of the gospel of peace. We take up the shield of faith and the helmet of salvation, and of course you know there's more. But at this point in the list we come to what I have, I've often thought of it and I've often called it our only piece of offensive weaponry. I think now that's incorrect. And I'll explain why as we continue. But verse 17 continuing on says, And take the sword of the Spirit which is the Word of God. So number six in the implements, in the armaments, is the sword of the Spirit. Okay, so what is the sword of the Spirit? It's the Word of God. Okay, someone was reading. I mean, he tells us straight out. The sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. But it might not be as simple as you might think on the surface. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12 says, For the Word of God, the Logos is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing as far as the division of soul and spirit, 
of both joints and marrow and able to judge the thoughts and the intentions of the heart. The Word of God. The sword of the Word. Right? Revelation 1.16 Describing Jesus. John said, In His right hand He held seven stars. I couldn't even hold one. And out of His mouth came a sharp two-edged sword. It's the one thing in the glorious resurrection picture of Jesus that, that John has in the Revelation. It's the one thing that's just bizarre. Everything else you can almost imagine. You know, even bronze feet. Okay, he's been out in the sun. His feet got tan. Cool. You know, the white hair expressing the wisdom and the eyes of fire just zealous, you know, for all that the Father is doing. But the sword coming out of his mouth, that picture, if you try to paint it on a canvas, is kind of weird. But we understand exactly what John is saying. The sword is the word. It's the word that he speaks. It's the word that he is. It's the word that he has written. Uh, Revelation chapter 2 verse 12, Jesus is called the one who has the sharp two-edged sword. And in Revelation 2.16, he says, Therefore repent, or else I am coming to you quickly, and I will make war against them with the sword of my mouth. But all the sword images in Revelation came after Paul. So those pictures that we get of the sword of his mouth in the book of Revelation, and even Hebrews, that, that comes later on. So here in Ephesians, he says that we are to take up the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. Where is Paul drawing this military imagery? Well, most of it he's drawn from Isaiah, right? So you might guess that the picture is also drawn from Isaiah, and you'd be right, Isaiah chapter 11, verse 4, He will strike the earth with the rod of His mouth, and with the breath of His lips He will slay the wicked. Isaiah is referencing again the Word. The power of the Word of God. The power of the Word of God to create. Let there be light. And there was light. And the power of the Word of God to take out. To destroy. To put down. The power of the Word. The sword of the Word. Revelation 19.15 sees Isaiah 11 verse 4 completely fulfilled. Let me read Isaiah 11.4 again. He will strike the earth with the rod of his mouth, and with the breath of his lips he will slay the wicked. That's not just poetic prophecy. That's literal. That will be fulfilled. Revelation 19.15 From his mouth comes a sharp sword, so that with it he may strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron, and he treads the winepress of the fierce wrath of God the Almighty. And then further in Revelation 19, following the very end of Antichrist and the false prophet, John writes that the rest were killed with the sword which came from the mouth of him who sat on the horse. The sword of the Word. The Word of God. Coming of the mouth of Jesus. And because the Word, Hologos in Hebrews 4.12, the Logos... Because it's called sharper than any two-edged sword. And because we see it in Revelation coming out of the mouth of the glorified Christ. We understand and completely and easily accept that Paul says the sword of the Spirit is the Word of God. Okay, it makes sense. I mean, it all jives in Scripture, right? So that's pretty simple. We could just move on. But we need to get more familiar with the sword. There's more to understand about the sword, maybe even our perspective of the sword. We have been, each one of us as followers of Jesus, called to skillfully wield the sword of the Word. Not to mishandle it, but as Paul wrote to Timothy, 2 Timothy 2.15, Be diligent to present yourself approved to God as a workman who does not need to be ashamed, accurately handling the Word of truth. Or 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 2. We have renounced the things hidden because of shame, not walking in craftiness or adulterating the Word of God. That's serious business, by the way. There is a lot of adulterating the Word of God. What does adulterating the Word of God mean? It means marrying God's Word with things that are not God's Word. It means putting God's Word together with things that are not of God, that are not divine, that are not inspired, that are not godly. It's trying to uphold the wisdom of man 
by sticking the Word of God next to it. And it's adultery. And we are not to do that. We are to be those who accurately handle the sword of the Word. Paul says, we don't adulterate the Word of God, but by the manifestation of truth, commending ourselves to every man's conscience in the sight of God. And so the Word, the Word is so vital to the war effort. You know that. If you've been going to the bridge very long, we've talked a lot about the Word, even while we've been in the Word. I continue to encourage, and I continue to be encouraged, that we all accurately handle the Word of Truth. That we be Bible students. That we understand the Word. And yet, a slight scuffle has occurred. And it's happened in the ranks of well-meaning Christians today. And I don't believe that this scuffle even occurred to the early Christians. I don't think they even gave this a second thought or even realized it or, or would have put it together in this way. A little dust up, if you will, between two camps. I guess there could be a third, but the third doesn't, I've never really seen, but at least two camps of believers who, well, one camp highly values the scriptures. The word of God. Right? And the other camp highly values a more personal spoken revelation. The Word of God. The Word and the Word. And which is it? And we've got entire companies based on this. We have Logos Bible Study Software and we have Rima Ministries. Which word do you most desire? And again, I think the first century Christians would say, what are you talking about? Which word? There's only one. There's just one word. The Bible camp has been accused of being too literal. You know, you cannot take all those stories literally. Come on. Noah and the ark? Have you been to the ark encounter? I've seen pictures online. Maybe we all ought to go. And I can tell you this, if the Lord wills and we get through Revelation and swing back around to Genesis, we will talk about how it is not only possible, but how it was actual that Noah was able to fill the ark with two of every kind of animal. It's, it's not hard to figure out when you look at the size and the numbers and how he would have done it. It's absolutely doable. But people say, Noah and the ark. Jonah and the whale. Come on. That stuff, I mean, it can't all be true. I would suggest to you it has to all be true. Or none of it is worth holding on to. Why? Because it claims to all be true. You have a book in your hands that says this is all literal and actual and legitimate. So if any of it is a lie or, or a metaphor or a falsehood without claiming to be... I mean, there, there are synonyms and pictures and metaphors in the Bible. But the Bible always tells us this is a picture or a synonym or a metaphor. Jesus tells us this is a parable, I'm going to tell you. It's not, this is just a story, he says. And so we see that. But again, there are those who say, yeah, but you Bible people, you fundamentalists... You're literal, you're impersonal, you're legalistic, you know, it's got to be scripture, scripture, scripture. And therefore, you're not quite as spiritual as perhaps the revelation camp. You know, those who, who I'm hearing from the Lord. I, I may not always have my Bible open, I, I prefer just to hear directly. And so those of the revelation camp are accused of being too experiential, too touchy feely, too hyper spiritual. And, and people are accusing each other behind, you know, behind our own battle lines. The battle's out there, not in here. But it goes on. And the thing is this. Understand that the Bible came to us by verifiable revelation. You realize we would not have the Bible if people didn't receive direct divine revelation from God. So if you have a problem with revelation, you have a problem with the Bible because that's where it came from. God spoke by the mouth of the prophets and the apostles and the witnesses of Jesus, and that's where the scriptures come from, is people who had divine revelation. And you might say, ah, but Rick, I know that Galatians 1.8 says that, that there's no further gospel. I know the end of the book of Revelation says, don't add to or subtract from the words of this book. Okay, you're right. But understand that the Bible came through verifiable revelation, that is, legitimate prophets who were proven to be legitimate, and 
any revelations must be verifiable by the Bible. So if someone comes along and says to you, I have a word from God for you, you be sure that it's biblical. You test it against the scriptures that we have been given. And and the two work beautifully together. It's not an either or. It is the word of God. It is the revelations of God. Well, let me give this more specifically to you. And I've done this before, but it's so important. There are three words in the scriptures that are used to describe the word of God. Three words for word. Okay, there's first off the logos. The Logos is the incarnational word. John chapter 1 verse 1, in the beginning was the word. Hologos. And the word was with God and the word was God. So the Logos, John says, is Jesus. And the word of God, the Bible itself is referred to by Paul and many of the other writers also as the Logos. But the Logos is that incarnational word. Then you have a second word that shows up. Every time you see the word scriptures, it's graphe. Now that's the one that we don't really have a graphe camp. You know, you've got the Logos camp, and you've got the Rima camp, and you don't really have a graphe camp. But graphe is the written word, where we get graphic. Okay? And it's used in, for example, 2 Timothy 3.16, all scripture, all graphe, is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, reproof, correction, for training in righteousness, so the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work, and man refers to mankind, so women, you too. That we all might be an equipped people. So you've got the logos, the incarnational word, you've got the graphe, the written word, and then you have the rima. And the rima's gotten a lot of attention, especially in the last couple of generations. The spoken word. And if you're just reading in the English, you don't always know which word is being used. Scriptures is easy. Anytime you see the word scriptures, that's graphe. But if you see the word word in the scriptures, it may be logos, Or it may be Rima, Logos, the incarnational word of Christ. Rima, the spoken word of Christ. Rima is what Paul uses in Romans 10.17. So faith comes from hearing, and hearing by the Rima of Christ. The word of Christ. Faith comes because I have heard the word Christ. So all three of these words, they are used interchangeably with equal weight and value as far as God is concerned. Numbers chapter 23 verse 19 tells us God is not a man that he should lie, nor a son of man that he should repent. Has he said and will he not do it? Has he spoken and will he not make it good? And one of my favorite verses, Psalm 138 verse 2, for you have magnified your word above all your name. So significant, so valuable, so true, so perfect is the word of God that he is elevated above his name. He's raised it up. He's he's staked, in other words, his entire reputation God has put, has staked on his word. Written, spoken, incarnational. It's all the word of God. Spoken cannot contradict written. Which is why we've said many times, if, if someone's trying to bring revelation or some kind of a word of the Lord, and it doesn't jive with scripture, it's not a word of the Lord because God's not going to contradict God. And part of the reason He gives us the Bible is so that we can understand and verify and discern whatever is being spoken is true. It's how you know that as a pastor teacher, I'm telling you the truth. Bible's open. Testing everything that I say. If you question if it sounds weird, ah, that's a little bizarre. Turn to the page, find it, read it, study it, know it. And if I'm wrong, you better tell me. Don't let me wander off in error. So the Bible does that. It's, it's, it gives us that, that foundation. And the written word, by the way, is not dull-edged. It is as sharp as cutting as the spoken word. It's all God's word. So are we getting that? Or am I clear on that? It's all God's word that we're talking about. And that understand, understood, when we're here in Ephesians 6.17, and he says the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God, the Word, Word is, any guesses? It's Rima. It's not Logos. I thought it would be. I mean, wouldn't you kind of expect it to be? The, the sword of the Word. You know, the Bible. It's the Rima. And there's a reason for it. I don't think it, it means what we might think it means. 
I could quote uh, Princess Bride. I know that's why you're laughing. No, the, the word here is rima. It's the spoken word of God. Listen to it read that way. And the sword of the Spirit, which is the spoken word of God. That's the sword of the Spirit. Well, I thought the word was the Logos. It is. I love that. I love the fact that in Hebrews 4.12, it's the Logos, the sword, and here the sword is the Rima. Because it doesn't matter, folks. It doesn't matter. Spoken or written, it is the Word of God. So however He has given it to us, it, it doesn't make any difference. God's Word, period, is sharper than any two-edged sword. It's sharp and it's powerful because God is the source of that Word. It's come from Him. He's the author. He's the spokesman. He became the incarnate Word in Jesus. And it reminds me, back in Deuteronomy chapter 8, verse 3, Moses is speaking to Israel, and he says, He humbled you, He let you be hungry, and then He fed you with manna which you did not know. Nor did your fathers know that He might make you understand that man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by everything that proceeds out of the mouth of the Lord. The Word. Right? And by the way, everything that proceeds out of the mouth of the Lord, the Hebrew word therefore everything is literally, jot this down, everything. Everything that proceeds out of the mouth of the Lord. That's what we live on. That's how we survive. That's how we flourish. It's the graphe. It's the rima. It's the logos. Genesis to Revelation, it is the Spirit of God speaking through the apostles, through the prophets, and, listen, and, don't miss this, through you. God speaking through you. And this is vital to get. The spoken word of God is our singular, most formidable weapon of attack. But the speaker is you. When we read this, take up the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. It is the Word of God spoken. It is the spoken Word. I don't believe what Paul's talking about here is is the, the occasional revelation. I think what he's talking about is you, as a soldier in the battle, speaking forth the Word of God. That's why it's a sword. If you don't speak it, it's useless. If you don't say it, it's no good. It's in the sheath. It's it's not used. If you're not saying what God has taught you, if you're not sharing what you've learned from the graphe, from the rima, from the logos, then what good is it? It's no sword at all. It's a sword because it is spoken. And again, I believe the speaker is you. Jesus was... Hey, Jesus used the Word, spoke the Word as a sword against the enemy when He was in the wilderness. In fact, He was quoting from Deuteronomy 6 and 8. I kind of wonder in my own thinking, and I can't prove this, but I have a sense that Jesus was in the wilderness and while He was going through all the temptations of the devil, He was meditating on Deuteronomy. I think he was studying it or thinking through it, processing through what was shared in Deuteronomy 6 and Deuteronomy 8. Why would you say that? Because every single temptation of Satan is followed by Jesus speaking from Deuteronomy 6 and Deuteronomy 8. Deuteronomy 8.3, man lives, man does not live by bread alone. Satan says, turn the bread, turn the stones into bread. And Jesus said, man doesn't live on bread alone. But by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God, he's quoting Deuteronomy 8. Jesus uses the sword of the word, speaking out the word. He wields that sword, repels the enemy in the wilderness, and he used it because he had it, because he knew it in his flesh. Now, I've had people say, well, Jesus is the word of God, so of course he knew the word. Yes, that's true. But He also took on flesh and dwelt among us and was raised in the same way to understand the Scriptures, to remember and to know the Scriptures, and to have the Scriptures available when needed. So at that point of the temptation of Jesus, it wasn't just that there was this divine flow in His his spirit. There was. But He also in His flesh had studied the Word. He knew the Word. He had it ready to wield in battle the sword, the spoken Word. 
Psalm 119.148 says, My eyes anticipate the night watches that I might meditate on your word. What a great psalm. And the picture there is just beautiful. It's, it's the soldier who says, I want to be on the wall late at night. Especially in the off-season when we're not at war and when there's no one besieging Jerusalem. I want to be on the wall at night. Why? Because it's quiet and I can meditate on your word uninterrupted. I love that. But pair that with the fact that he's on the wall keeping watch at the same time. Colossians 3.16 says, Let the word of Christ richly dwell within you. And then again, Romans 10.17, Faith comes from hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. And there again, Paul is talking about the sword of the word, the word spoken. Because in Romans 10, the context... Of, of faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. The context is the giving of the gospel. The context is people with beautiful feet bringing the good news. And then Paul makes that comment, and hearing comes by the word of Christ. That is, you get faith because you hear the word that someone else has spoken to you. The non-believer, someone uses the sword of the word and it cuts to the heart. And they hear and faith comes. The sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God that you, that I speak. And that's the key here. Yes, God speaks His Word. I'm not questioning that. I'm not undermining that. But the rima here, the spoken Word, and Paul's use of it in Romans chapter 10, it is the sword of the Spirit spoken by you. I'm convinced of this because, again, this is all armaments that we wear in battle. We're the ones using the full armor of God. So for me to wield the sword is for me to speak the word, which is why he uses the word rima in this place, because I'm speaking it out. And in so doing, I am swinging the sword. Got it? Uncertain about what I'm telling you? Study it out for yourself, and you'll discover I'm right. Okay, and so the next... This, this whole concept though, and, and it's really, it, this may not be a big thing for you. In fact, I gotta tell you. If you go home tonight and go, well, I knew all of that. Goody for you, I didn't. So my study just for tonight was worth it for me. <laughs> Selfishly. And there's more to this. But even just that reality, that, that, uh, that understanding, the spoken word, the rima, it's me speaking it. I'm the one wielding the sword of the word of God. It's His word. But I'm speaking it. That is potent in spiritual warfare. That's why we need to be people of the Word. It's why we need to be studied in the book. It's why we need to be hearing the Lord. It's also why the next piece of equipment is all the more essential. Because if I'm going to be speaking out the Word of God, I've got to be using this next piece of equipment. What is it? Verse 18. Not normally in the quote-unquote list, but listen, with all prayer... And petition, pray at all times in the Spirit. And with this in view, be on the alert with all perseverance and petition for all the saints. So I would add this as implement number seven, armament number seven. To go with all the others, the field radio of prayer. The field radio. Prayer is our two-way handheld or hands-upheld our two-way, hands-upheld, portable radio transceiver. That's prayer. Absolutely vital in spiritual warfare because it is our direct line to HQ. We are boots on the ground, but we are talking to headquarters. We are in communication with our commander. We are not out here on our own. Prayer is what connects us and, and brings about or allows for that kind of communication. Paul was insistent on this. 1 Thessalonians 5.17 Pray without ceasing. Don't stop praying. Be praying all the time. I think one of the most effective things that the enemy has done, that the devil has done in this generation, is noise. That our lives are so noisy, we're not praying without ceasing. You get in the car and your finger goes to the dial. 
music's playing or the, or the news is on. The noise fills the car. And, okay, now I'm hearing the noise. And I'm in the constant cacophony of the noise. And it seems like it's never ending. How can we hear the Lord? Well, the field radio of prayer. Now watch this. Paul, after saying that we are to take up the sword of the Spirit, which is the spoken word of God. He goes on then to talk about prayer, and he gives two aspects of this crucial calm link, if you will, to our commander. Two aspects of it. Note this, he mentions prayer and petitions. These are not just synonyms. I know this because he follows up each one with explanation. There's prayer. It's the Greek word prosuke. And it means addressing God. Prayer is addressing God. I'm just talking to Him. Petition uh, is deesis. Deesis is requesting of God. One is addressing God. The other one is requesting something from God. Prayer and petitions. That makes sense. But listen to the definition. Watch this. Paul defines prayer as, note this, Pray at all times in the Spirit. He says, I want you to, with all prayer and petition, first of all, pray at all times in the Spirit. And then he says, and with this in view, he talks about then petition. I'll get there in just a second. But prayer, he defines as praying in the Spirit at all times. All right, what does that mean? Praying in the Spirit. It means that we pray both with the assistance of and under the influence of the Holy Spirit. That the Spirit is actively engaged in and involved with our prayer. The first example we have of this, at least in the church, is Acts chapter 4, verse 31. Listen to this. And when they had prayed, the place where they had gathered together was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak the Word of God. There it is. They're speaking the Word with boldness. And I call that praying in the Spirit. <laughs> gathered together. Then you might say, well, that's, my, that's not my definition of praying in the Spirit because in Acts 4.31 where they're all praying, we see what they're praying, we understand what they're praying, it's all you know, right there in good Greek or good Hebrew or good English. So it's not really praying in the Spirit. Oh, the Spirit showed up. And when the Spirit shows up, you've been praying in the Spirit. You understand what I'm saying? Praying in the Spirit involves the work of the Spirit. The last uh, examples that we have of praying in the Spirit actually are in the book of Revelation. Remember what John said at the beginning of the book? Revelation chapter 1, verse 10, he says, I was, or verse 1, I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day. What was John doing? He was praying in the Spirit. Worshiping in the Spirit. Aware of, cognizant of, the influence and the presence of the Holy Spirit. And three more times in Revelation, John mentions being in the Spirit. Two of those three times, he even says, I was carried off by the Spirit to receive revelation of things going on in heaven. But he says, I was in the Spirit. And this concept of being in the Spirit is one of, I think, one of the most misunderstood in the Bible. Of course it would be. The enemy doesn't want you to understand it because if he can shut down praying in the Spirit, he can shut down our field radio and we have no more good communication. Praying in the Spirit. So what is it? What does that mean? How does that look? We can go all the way back to Matthew 6. Jesus' disciples said, Lord, teach us to pray like John's disciples. And He taught them to pray. Oh, is that praying in the Spirit? Yeah. But I thought there was more. There is. 1 Corinthians 14. Paul describes it this way. Paul says, If I pray in a tongue, my spirit prays, but my mind is unfruitful. What is the outcome then? I will pray with the Spirit, and I will pray with the mind also. I will sing with the Spirit, and I will sing with the mind also. So Rick, you're talking about speaking in tongues, aren't you? You're telling us, you know, Praying in the Spirit, does that mean I have to pray in tongues? Is praying in tongues or a prayer language, is that the definition of praying in the Spirit? Listen, some do, some will, some don't. Those who don't, are they just not praying in the Spirit? 
I reject that. In fact, I will tell you what saddens my heart is when praying in the Spirit becomes a measure for comparison in the church. Oh, that guy has a prayer language. So he's clearly more in tune with the Lord than this person over here. You know, I've actually seen the opposite. I've seen people with prayer languages being incredibly carnal. And I've seen people who don't have a prayer language or don't speak in tongues be incredibly spiritual and in tune with the Lord and hearing from the Lord, though they might not even term it that way. In fact, one of the, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to talk about Jeff D'Angelo because he's not here right now. But Pastor Jeff, he has a certain humility that I have just admired for years. And in that humility, Jeff will reject anything that in the slightest way makes him look a little more spiritual than someone else. He just, he just won't go there. And so he will often say things like, yeah, no, I don't hear from the Lord like you hear from the Lord. And then five minutes later, he'll turn around and say, you know what the Lord's really told me is this. And you've heard him, haven't you, Penelope? Yep. He hears from the Lord constantly. You know, Jeff's on staff as one of our pastors because the Lord told him to be. I didn't ask him. I didn't want him to be on staff. No, I'm kidding. But no, this the idea of Jeff coming on as pastoral staff, that came from the Lord. And it came because Jeff started hearing him. But Jeff would say, no, I, you know. What are you saying, Rick? I'm saying we have misunderstood. We, we try to categorize because we, so, we want so desperately to understand things that we say praying in the Spirit is codified by praying in tongues. I don't think so. So it's not? I didn't say that either. You reject praying in tongues, don't you, Rick? No, I don't. I don't reject, let me be clear, I don't reject the idea of prayer languages. I think if you read 1 Corinthians 14, you have trouble ignoring it. It's one of those places in Scripture where it's here, man. And Paul says very clearly, listen again, if I pray in a tongue, my spirit prays, but my mind is unfruitful. What's he saying? I don't know what I'm saying. So I'm not thinking up words to say in prayer. I'm praying in a way that I don't know what I'm saying, and so my mind isn't really engaged in this. But my spirit is. What exactly does that look like? Well, (laughs) you know, the further I get into explaining it, the more people then start to go, oh, so that's it. Be careful with that. When people say, oh, I wish, I wish I could pray in the Spirit. Let me ask you this. If you're one of those, if you've said, I I don't have a prayer language, and I don't pray in a tongue other than just English, so you've never groaned to the Lord? So you're telling me you've never been in a place in prayer where you had nothing to say, but you weren't done praying yet? The Spirit is engaged. The Spirit is speaking. And I think that's the key. If you've never just been silent before the Lord and and had a sense of His grace that you didn't have before you bowed, if you've never quieted your spirit to hear from God. See, this is the key. F.F. Bruce puts it this way. I love this. He says, It is no criterion of the power of the Spirit that the person praying does not understand his own prayer. On the other hand, there are prayers and aspirations of the heart that cannot be well articulated. Romans 8.26, Paul says, In the same way the Spirit also helps our weakness, for we do not know how to pray as we should, but the Spirit Himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. So listen, and get this very clearly. As much as the sword of the Spirit has to do with speaking out God's Word, so praying in the Spirit has to do with hearing God's Word. It is not as much about what you're saying or what you're articulating, be it a prayer language or English or whatever. That's not the issue. The issue is the hearing. Praying in the Spirit is the listening aspect of prayer. My dad had a mealtime prayer that my brother and I, I think I had it memorized by about the age of two because he said it every single time we ate together. At breakfast, we'd have prayer. And my dad would always finish off the same way. And then at dinner time, when he was back home after a long day of work, we'd have prayer, and he would finish it the exact same way. He always used to say, Guide, guard, and direct us. In Jesus' name, amen. 
guide, guard, and I will never forget that. Guide, guard, and direct us. In Jesus' name, amen. What good is such a prayer if our field radios are only one-way transmitters? If I'm praying, guide, guard, and direct me, Lord, but it only goes one direction. What good is that? You know what? We have a word for that, actually. It's called a baby monitor. We put them in our houses. We stick them in the kids' room so we can know if they're in there messing around instead of sleeping. We know. We know. They can't hear us. There are times I wish they would. We're upstairs. The kids are downstairs. The way our house is built. Baby monitor's on, and we could hear them. This is years ago, but David and Naomi messing around, playing around, goofing off in the room. I wanted to pick up the monitor and go, click... Kids, this is the Lord. Go thou to bed. You know, couldn't do it. It was one way. Far too many people think it's one way. Hey, prayer is not God's monitoring system so He can hear what's going on down here. Praying in the Spirit transmits both ways. It's our crying out. Addressing the Lord. And then, and this is the tough part, and then it's listening. For him to respond. It's waiting to hear what he has to say. Oh, now you're getting weird, Rick, because now you're talking about God speaking, and I've never heard the audible voice of God. I didn't say that. But again, so many of you have heard God. I, I hear it in your language. I hear it in the things you say. The Lord told me to. I really felt God impressed me too. God has shown me that. That's all hearing the Lord. So heighten the listening. Because that is the important issue. More than tongues, more than utterances. And again, I'm not downplaying the gifts of the Spirit or the effects of the Spirit or the ministries of the Spirit that we studied back in 1 Corinthians 12, 13, and 14. I'm not downplaying that at all. Praying in the Spirit more than tongues, utterances, or groaning is about Listening. Listening. Pray in the Spirit at all times, he says. Isaiah 50, verse 4. I love it because this gets both word and prayer involved here, both the the sword and the field radio. Isaiah says, The Lord God has given me the tongue of disciples that I may know how to sustain the weary one with a word of speaking. And He awakens me morning by morning. He awakens my ear to listen as a disciple. I truly believe that our prayer groups and prayer circles do a little too much talking. I I think we can begin that way, address the Lord, but I think we need to spend a little more time listening. You know, to say, Lord, we have this issue before You and, and we're really seeking Your will on this. And then we talk to him about the issue for five or ten minutes, and then we say, in Jesus' name, amen, and we go on about our business. And I just imagine God standing there saying, (sighs) You just add, and I, I mean, I can, okay, I guess you have this one. You clearly figured it out in your own prayer. Listen, listen, listen. John 10.16, Jesus said, I have other sheep which are not of this fold. And He was talking about Israel. He says, I must bring them also. He's talking about us. And they will hear My voice. And they will become one flock with one shepherd. He says in John 10.27, My sheep hear My voice. I know them, and they follow Me. And I give eternal life to them and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. Why? Because we hear Him and we follow Him. We are listening. We are to be about listening. Revelation chapters 2 and 3, seven times Jesus says, He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. He doesn't say, He who has an ear, let him hear what Pastor Rick says to the churches. Thank God. Hear what the Spirit's saying. The Spirit's probably going to tell you something tonight that's different than what He told me. You're going to walk out of here and take something completely different than someone sitting two seats over in your same row. How does that work? The Spirit is speaking to the church. And our job is to listen to Him. 
Jesus said in Revelation 3.20, Behold, I stand at the door and knock, and if anyone hears My voice and opens the door, I will come into him and will dine with him and he with Me. And by the way, that is not an evangelism verse. When Jesus says, Behold, I stand at the door and knock, He's not knocking on the door of the non-believer. He's knocking on the door of the church. In the context of that passage, I'm knocking. Will you open the door to me? Will you listen to me? Praying in the Spirit is listening prayer. Which is far more powerful than talking prayer. Regardless of the language. In large part, what, what Paul is describing, and I, we need to stay here just a little longer. In 1 Corinthians 14, when he talks about, when I pray in the Spirit, my mind is unfruitful. What he's talking about in large part is the quieting of the Spirit. You know, dialing things down from the, from the clamor. Settling the mind. Calming the cogitations. I don't know if you're anything like me, but my mind never stops. It just spins and, and whirs all the time. It's just going, going, going. And so I love movies. Because when the movie's playing, I'm like, there's only one thing going on. I really appreciate that, you know? Or reading a good book. If I can find a good book and get into it, then that's the only thing that's going on, and it actually causes my mind to kind of quiet down. And by the way, the concept behind, I understand, developing a prayer language before the Lord is to quiet the Spirit so that you can hear Him. So that you can pay attention to what He's saying. It helps me stop thinking of scenarios long enough that the Lord then can speak to me and I can hear what He wants. But let me just suggest this to all of us. I think one of the best things that we can do to pray in the Spirit, listen, it's very simple, just stop talking. Lord, here's the problem we have before You. What would You have us do? After about... Oh, I don't know, seven and a half seconds, we start to get antsy and uncomfortable. Someone else going to pray here? I don't know, it's getting kind of long. We've been like now 27 seconds and no one's speaking. We need to learn to listen. It's not fretting. It's not fussing. It's not agonizing. Again, it's not spinning out scenarios. It's not asking the next question before the previous question has even been answered. What is a parent say to a crying or upset child, shh, hush, calm down. That's what my daughter Hannah used to say to me when I started to get riled up. Hannah, I can't believe you would do- Just calm down, Dad. Don't you tell me to calm down. <laughs> calm down. Be still. How many of you have ever, parents, held a child on your lap who was really upset and just said, be still, be still. It's okay. Shh. And that is praying in the Spirit. It's listening prayer. Psalm 46.10 Cease striving. Know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. And I'll tell you what, if that's the case, then I can cease striving. God's going to be exalted over all, then it really doesn't. My piddly little problems don't matter a hill of beans. He's going to be exalted. So I can chill. Because it's all done. Zechariah 2.13, I love this verse. Be silent, all flesh, before the Lord, for He is aroused from His holy habitation. Just shh and listen. And if you've got to fill the space at all, maybe meditate on the Word. But be still before the Lord. And by the way, the marvelous thing about prayer is, as Paul says, I can pray at all times. There is nowhere where you can keep me from praying. They tell us we can't pray on the Temple Mount. The Muslim waqf, the authority up there, the Palestinian authority that's on the Temple Mount, doesn't want you to pray. If they see you bow your head, they'll come rushing over and tell you to stop. You are not allowed to have a Bible up there at all. You're also not allowed to laugh, be joyful, or seem to enjoy yourself. I mean, it's very dark. Yeah. No, you can't pray on the Temple Mount. You know what? I pray every time we're on the Temple Mount. Most of the time we're there, I'm just praying. Partially because I'm rebellious and they tell me I can't. You know, 
I can pray anywhere at any time, no matter in the middle of traffic. You can be in the Spirit. Everybody else is honking and mad and frustrated, and you're just kind of having a great time with the Lord in the Spirit. You can pray at all times. You can pray intentionally, which means you have scheduled time and you are spending this time with the Lord as Jesus did every morning and oftentimes through the night. You can also pray instantly. Let me give you an example of this. Uh, You can turn there or just listen. But the book of Nehemiah begins... Now it happened in the month of Kislev in the 20th year while I was, Nehemiah writing, while I was in Susa, the capital of Persia, that Hanani, one of my brothers, with some men from Judah came. And I asked them concerning the Jews who had escaped and had survived the captivity and about Jerusalem. And they said to me, Oh, the remnant there in the province who survived the captivity are in great distress and great reproach. And the wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates are burned with fire. Therefore, or in other words, not repaired. And so Nehemiah says, When I heard these words, I sat down and wept and mourned for days. Not four days, but for days. And he says, I was fasting and praying before the God of heaven. And it goes on in chapter 1 to tell this prayer, I beseech you, Lord God of heaven, he begins to pray and he's, he's for days, he's fasting, he's waiting on the Lord. I guarantee you, there were long moments of quiet where Nehemiah was waiting to hear from the Lord. Nehemiah chapter 2, it came about in the month of Nisan, in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, that wine was before him and I took up the wine and gave it to the king. Now I had not been sad in his presence, So the king said to me, Why is your face sad, though you are not sick? This is nothing but sadness of heart. And then I was very much afraid. So I said to the king, Let the king live forever. Why should my face not be sad when the city, the place of my father's tombs, lies desolate and its gates have been consumed by fire? So the king said to me, What would you request? I love this. Nehemiah says, So I prayed to the God of heaven. And I said to the king, If it please the king, and your servant has found favor before you, send me to Judah, to the city of my father's tombs, that I may rebuild it. How long was that prayer? In the one hand, chapter 1, he prayed for days, and wept and mourned and fasted. And then, now before the king, the king says, What's up? Why are you so sad? Well, it's because of this. Well, what would you have me do? (gasps) Okay, here's what I need. And so you can pray intentionally and you can pray instantly. At all times. Pray without ceasing, Paul says. Pray in the Spirit all the time. And Nehemiah did it. Nehemiah prayed and Nehemiah, number two, offered petitions. And back in Ephesians 6, that's the second aspect that Paul deals with. He says, with all prayer and petition. And then regarding prayer, he says, pray at all times in the Spirit. And with this in view... Regarding petition, he says, Be on the alert with all perseverance and petition for all the saints. So this now is the soldiers in the field requesting backup. You know, calling in air support. Calling for supplies or or strategic direction from headquarters. This is now the prayer that is requesting of the Lord. But note this. Petitionary supplication, we use that word too, petitions and supplications, same idea. It comes with this requirement. Be alert. Pray with perseverance. Pray with watchfulness. He says literally, pray, be on the alert, pray with all perseverance and petition for all the saints. Now, the parallel passage to this is in Colossians 4. Remember the letter to Colossians was another prison letter of Paul. So there are similarities between the practical sections of Colossians and and Ephesians. Well, in Colossians 4 verse 2, Paul says, Devote yourselves to prayer, keeping alert in it with an attitude of thanksgiving. So again, it's it's that concept of if we're going to petition the Lord, we've got to do it with alertness. Which partially means we're watching for Him to answer. We are alert to the fact that we have now asked for this, so we're waiting on you, Lord, to answer. 
We're waiting to see what you're going to say, what you're going to do, which, by the way, takes us right back into praying in the Spirit. Because now I'm going to listen. I'm going to wait. But what's interesting is though he uses keeping alert in it in Colossians 4.2, the word for on the alert in Ephesians is now a different word. Same concept, but a different word. The, the word here is agrufneo, and it means pray with awakeness. As in, awaken my soul, come awake. Petitionary prayer is wakeful prayer. It's not that sleepy prayer right before you drift off that you don't remember what you were praying, but hey, you were still in the Father's arms, so that's cool. It's wakeful, alert. You know what you're asking, you're waiting for response kind of prayer. It's the same word, by the way, that Jesus uses twice talking about the rapture of the church. Where Jesus says in Mark 13.33, Take heed, keep on the alert, for you do not know when the appointed time will come. Stay awake. It's Luke 21.36, but He says, Keep on the alert at all times, praying that you may have strength to escape all these things that are about to take place and to stand before the Son of Man. So praying in the Spirit is listening prayer, whereas petitions are, you are praying with wakeful expectancy. You are looking for answer and you are looking to Jesus. It's, it's military vigilance. Either for word back from HQ or for the commander himself to come. I am petitioning the Lord. I am alert, you might even say, as a watchman on Nehemiah's wall. Waiting and watching for the Lord to answer. Seven armaments. Reviewing them, we put on the belt of truth, the breastplate of righteousness, having shod our feet with the combat boots of preparation of the gospel of peace. We take up the shield of faith, the helmet of salvation, the sword of the Spirit, and we offer up the field radio, our two-way transceiver of prayer. But I would add one more. It's at the close of the letter where Paul says in verse 24, Grace be with all those who love our Lord Jesus Christ with incorruptible love. Literally what he just said there, grace be with all those who love our Lord Jesus Christ in incorruption. In incorruption. The last two words of this heavenly letter to and through the church of Ephesus are absolutely heavenly. They are words of incorruption. They are words of eternity. And so the one more thing that I would add to our holy haversack that I would put in with the previous seven is number eight. And if you've been keeping notes, you can do this. If not, no worries. It's the sea rations of incorruptible love. Sea rations. I chose that on purpose. It's the Christ rations. Because the incorruptible love is the love of Christ. It is the love of Christ which controls us, Paul says. The incorruptible love, loving Christ in incorruption is only possible because He loved us first. And because His love is in me, now suddenly my love becomes incorruptible. It's a sea ration. It's it's in my backpack because it is an imperishable provision. The love of God never fails. Will never fail. So whether it's today, this night, or a billion, trillion, gazillion years into eternity, the love of God will be as effective then as it is now. It never fails. And we need this love of God. Imperishable provision never goes bad. It is undying. No attack can kill it. No one can take the love of God out of me. Nothing, Paul says, Romans 8, can separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Our love, listen now, this is important. And the reason why I include love in the armaments. Our love for other people is nourished and sustained and protected by the incorruptible love of Jesus. And for me to love Him in incorruption means I must live a life where I am loving others. I want you to turn over to Matthew 16. We're going to end there tonight. Because this leads us to a final question. If in all of these armaments, if love truly is 
to be over all and through all and in all of the armaments of God. If it is part of the armor. And I believe the love of God is the thing that holds all the armor together and it keeps it on us. But if that's the case, then it answers the question, what is this struggle really about? What is the struggle really about? You guys are already over there. Stay there in Matthew 16. But listen again. Paul said in, in uh, Ephesians 6.12, Our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, the powers, the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. Okay, that's who it's against. But what is this spiritual struggle about? What is our objective as soldiers who take up the full armor of God? Every soldier needs an objective. What are we doing out here? What is it that we're fighting for? Tell me what my objective is. And this we see in Matthew 16, verse 13. Listen, when Jesus came in the district of Caesarea Philippi, He was asking His disciples, Who do people say the Son of Man is? And they said, Well, some say John the Baptist, and others Elijah, but still others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. And He said, But who do you say that I am? Simon Peter answered, You are the Christ, Son of the living God. Jesus said to him, Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. I also say to you that you are Peter, pebble, and upon this rock I will build my church, and note this, and the gates of Hades will not overpower it. What does that mean? This is the answer to what our struggle is all about. This is the answer to our objective in this warfare. Some read this and they say, the gates of Hades will not prevail against it. Understand, he didn't say the gates of hell. It's Hades. It's Sheol. Which we have defined and described recently in our Ephesians study as the the waiting place of the dead that had both the paradise side and it had the torment side. Do you remember that? And the chasm in between, and Jesus described this in Luke 16, so you can go back and study that. But that, that's Hades. And when Jesus died, Ephesians 4, He descended into Hades, not hell, but Hades, and He led out a captive host of captives. That is, those on the paradise side who died in faith before the cross. Jesus dies, He goes down, He leads them out, He empties out paradise. And that's my understanding of what he's talking about in Ephesians chapter 4. But, there's still the torment side. Now, if someone dies in faith in Jesus, where do they go? Where does the Spirit go? Straight home to be with the Lord. When When the Spirit is absent from the body, we are present with the Lord. So if you die in faith, you're with Jesus. Your Spirit is at home immediately. What if you don't die in faith in Jesus? Hades, Sheol, waiting for judgment. Now get this, understand it. The full armor of God is for advancing on the gates of Hades. It is for going on the offensive. In fact, it is solely for the offensive. Notice this, the full armor of God is all frontal. There's nothing behind you. It's a helmet, it's a breastplate, right? It's the belt. It's the sword. All these things are on the front. This is for those who are charging into battle. This is not for those who are fleeing in retreat. You run away, you're going to get an arrow in the back. This is for charging ahead, for advancing the kingdom over and against the gates of Hades. That's our objective. To advance the kingdom against the gates of Hades. But, But there's more. Don't think of these gates of Hades as these big iron barred gates. The city gate, and you would see this in Israel, every ancient place that we go, every archaeological dig that we visit, you begin to realize the city gates were not gates, they were the courthouse, really. The city gates were the the seat of government for every city. Uh, Judgments were made, laws were decided there, council was undertaken. When Jesus says, and the gates of Hades will not overpower it, will not overpower the church, He is saying, the counsel of the enemy will not overpower the church. On this rock, this faith, 
in Christ Jesus, I will build my church and the gates of Hades will not prevail. The counsel of the enemy will not prevail against the church. And so our objective then is to storm the gates of Hades. Why? To overwhelm the counsel of the enemy with the gospel of Jesus Christ. The counsel of the enemy is playing out in the world. It is what is drawing people into Hades. And the the horror and the tragedy is if someone is dying and going to Hades, they are dying and going to ultimate eventual judgment. That's the only reason you go to Hades now is to wait for judgment. Because God is completely fair. And so here we are putting on the full armor of God to fight to save someone who is headed for Hades. We fight against the counsel of the enemy that they don't pass through the gates of Hades. We are fighting for the lost. That is the spiritual struggle. That's the big battle. Yes, we have struggles ourselves. Yes, we have difficulties and and hardships and tribulations. But that's not the point of the battle. We are fighting for their lives with incorruptible love that will never fail. Our fight is for the lost of this world. And Father, we pray that You would arm us for that engagement. That we would not shy away from the full armor of God. That we would be those, Father, who know Your Word, written, spoken, incarnate, and would wield it as a sharp two-edged sword. Those who are willing to proclaim and declare the Gospel, the truth about Jesus. Those who are bold with Your Word in our everyday common lives. And Father, teach us to pray. Teach us to listen. Help us understand truly what it means to pray in the Spirit and hear Your will. And Lord, with that, with all prayer and petition, Father, we we cry out to You on behalf of the saints that all the saints together might be armored up for this battle. And we might be effective, Lord, in the salvation of the lost, again declaring the Gospel of Jesus. Lord, I pray that Your Word would get in and would stick in our hearts. And, oh Lord, cause us to meditate on these things, to review them, to think them through. And when it's all said and done, Lord, we look to join You in the Eperoniois, the heavenly places. In Christ Jesus, and in your name we pray. Amen.